When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. I'm your host, Lisa DeLay. And today we have a guest, Dr. Cindy Lee, a spiritual director. She teaches at Fuller. She's a Taiwanese-American. She lives in L.A., but she's also lived in Beijing and Taipei. And today we're speaking about her book that I really enjoy called Our Unforming, De-Westernizing Spiritual Formation. Thank you, Cindy, for joining me across the world today. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Uh, and I am also... Um, uh, honored to be here because I have really enjoyed your book. Um, I remember uh, a line that you wrote about holy tears, and that has stuck with me for a long time. Uh, and so I continue to uh, use your book in my teaching as well. So thank you for your work. Oh, that's so awesome to hear that. I, um, our books are really kindred in some important ways. And you have written with Fortress Press, and I've written with Broadleaf, which is out of the same company. And I'm yes. really thrilled that they are including uh, non-dominant voices and uh, encouraging other points of view to come to the surface, finally, after how long? I don't know, <laughs> forever. Right. Um, but it is really great that you are not just writing, but you're also teaching uh, with these different perspectives in mind. Um, it's just such a a blessing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the class you're teaching now. I just finished teaching a course on mysticism. Um, and then I have an upcoming spiritual direction cohort coming up that I'll be teaching. Um, but, you know, all of it is just in this area of spirituality. So it's coming out of my own desires. Um, for just greater depth in my spiritual life. Um, and so it's just an honor to teach that as well. Um, but, you know, Howard Thurman has this line about when he was teaching, you know, spiritual formation that uh, is, he believed that it's something that you, that can't be taught, but it can be caught. Uh, and that's the same with the classes that I teach that I ultimately you know, spirituality is our own inner work, and you can't do that for someone else. Um, and so we can only inspire and encourage, but it's, it's just not something that can actually be taught. Excellent point. At the beginning of the book, you talk about theology 
And that's often about knowing, knowing certain things. But spirituality is about experiencing and what's happening in our regular life and our relationships. And that's really, you know, if you're in a class that's about spiritual formation or spirituality, you can hope people catch on and want to be involved. But it's not something you can, you know, you're leading people to water. But if they want to drink the water, it's up to them if they how much they want to participate in that. Maybe you can explain a little bit about the difference between theology and spirituality as you see it. Yeah. Um, so I understand it as, you know, theology is what we can know about God uh, rather than spirituality is what we can experience of God. And so, um, you know, spirituality is just, you know, our everyday experiences of the divine and the holy and the sacred. Um, and sometimes it can't be grasped with the mind or described with words. It can only be experienced. I like to think about spirituality as, you know, the actual living of our belief. We can make belief claims and we can know different things theologically, but actually how we're living them out is our spirituality and the ways of being and our relationships. And spirituality is essentially about our aliveness. No matter what theology we uh, have learned or claim to uh, espouse, there's so much we're not covering that I feel like it's important to cover what what's in the contents of the book. So there's part one, orientation, cyclical, and that covers time, remembering, uncertainty. Part two, orientation, experience, imagination, language, work and rest. Part three, orientation, collective, dependence, elders, harmony, and then there's a conclusion. And there's a lot we can't possibly cover in this little chat that we're doing, but this book is very rich. It covers a lot of areas with new insights that I don't think you're going to get in a lot of spiritual formation books. I think it's, this is a very important book. And thank you, Cindy. It's just been amazing to read. It's really interesting on page 12. I, I really like where you note something about spiritual postures versus practices. This mm. is a, a nice key insight that can be really helpful. Can you explain this a little bit, how you speak of spiritual postures rather than practices? Yeah, I found that, you know, in our modern day spirituality, in our modern day, you know, contemplation, we have tried to make it fit into uh, our modern day lives. And so we, we've we've sort of gone to this extreme of looking at spiritual practices as activities that we do that we can then conveniently put into our planners, right? That we can, um, you know, do yoga in the morning and examine prayer in the evening and then check them off the list. Um, but, you know, our spirituality is simply our lived experience with God. And so, you know, they aren't just the things that we do but it is how we are living uh, in this life. And so um, in my book, instead of using uh, spiritual practices, then um, I just write about um, our spiritual postures, how we are entering into life um, with the awareness of the sacred all around us. One of the best takeaways I think readers will get from your book is 
particularly the de-westernizing and and really what that means is is the kind of break out of some of the boxes we don't know that we live in in terms of mm-hmm. what western thought and western confines do to us in creating graven images or these false ideas about god and we don't realize how we're conditioned over the years in a culture over not just us but our ancestors what they passed down to us and how just seeing things from a different perspective you realize oh wait god is bigger than this western box i've been handed through the years. One of those ways is on page 20, and you speak about how we can be helped by understanding the spiritual path as cyclical instead of linear, and how in Western terms, usually things kind of fall in a sort of linear, imagined in a sort of linear path, which Mm -hmm. isn't as helpful sometimes as imagining it in a cyclical path. And we might be really renewed to see it in those ways. And maybe you can describe this difference in thinking. The West is a, or at least in the U.S., we're a future-oriented culture, uh, which I also write about in the book. And, you know, with that future orientation, we're just always looking ahead. And so we tend to then see life as this linear journey. And that's what we hear in our, you know, faith and discipleship and spirituality literature as well, right? That here are the steps that you take. Um, to grow as a Christian. But I think in our actual experiences, we don't experience our faith or our spirituality like that. It doesn't fall into these neat steps along the way. And so, you know, I began to wonder, what if it wasn't a linear journey to begin with? What if it's something else? And if we look at so much of the the philosophy, the stories, the literature in non-Western cultures, we realize, oh, they don't have a linear orientation. They have a cyclical orientation and that they learn that from creation, right? That our earth has a cyclical orientation of day and night, a cyclical rhythm of, you know, the seasons, of our planets, right? That everything is in a circular rhythm. Um, And so I began to wonder, you know, what would it be like if we saw our faith and our spirituality in this circular rhythm, that there is no, you know, steps along the way and some, you know, goal that you meet, but it's just our everydayness with God, you know, going to sleep and waking up with God. There's a, a rhythm more than a progression in many ways that actually takes the pressure off that we might think, hey, I have these expectations. I'm supposed to be here, up ahead, <laughs> and I'm over here. But if it's a cycle, then you're going to have you know, times of fallow and times of growth. And you know, I'm thinking even in the Bible, how it's written, something I learned in seminary is, the Bible stories are written in a chiastic structure where you it goes somewhere, there's a middle point, and then it comes back. Like in the story of Joseph, uh, there's all these repeat things. Like he is thrown into a pit, and then he's later he's in a pit in jail. You know, And, and if you look, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of doublings because it goes in a circle. It goes in a cycle. And that's how everything was written 
in order to help with, you know, um, mnemonics and memory of, of the stories. But it also relates to many things and how life goes. You'll see patterns repeating and you'll learn something new when, when that pattern comes up again. It's just a, a mechanism of how we can view our spiritual path. Or some people talk about a spiral. It's a circle, but it's kind of lands at a little bit of a different point each time. And so there's different ways of viewing our spiritual journey that don't have to look linear and Western. And as we tweak it or just understand that there's other ways of looking at it, I think the broadness of that can come as a like a sweet relief. And I'm hoping that some of the concepts in your book bring this out so well. And that's one of them that I that like immediately to me is like, oh, that's right. Why am I thinking of it this way? It doesn't have to, that was just handed to me. You know, I, I don't have to be in these confines. I love the part where you mentioned on page 32 about this time about leaving behind markers like clocks and planners and stripping down to just light and dark. And this is another kind of a cultural imposition that we have, at least in the United States. I think a lot of other places too where mm -hmm. things are planned and timed and we have to kind of keep up with our planners and they sort of take away our humanity in, in many ways. Maybe you can talk about this particular time a little bit and give listeners a taste of what you're speaking about in the book. Yeah, I think if we have a, a linear orientation, then it creates in us this need to you know, constantly keep moving forward and to progress in our life. And if we aren't progressing and if we aren't productive, then we feel like failures. Um, and, and so, you know, that linear orientation then creates just this, the busyness that we all find ourselves in and our lives become ruled by um, our planners. Um, and, and part of that, all of that is that, you know, planning gives us a sense of control um, that, you know, we try to, you know, protect ourselves from uncertainties and fears by planning, trying to control our lives. Um, and a circular orientation helps us move into the uncertain and into the unknowns of life um, and really to be present um, to what's going on right here, right now, rather than constantly planning uh, towards the future. Um, uh, and so in the book, I talk about an experiment that I did um, where I just tried to live without you know, clocks and planners and calendars as much as possible. I mean, it's, it's not completely possible, um, but as much as I could, I just tried to get rid of that that need in me to constantly be productive. And so I tried to get rid of that, just that Western notion of time. Um, and that helped release my need for productivity. Um, it was just mm. to follow the rhythms of the earth, um, pay attention to my desires, um, and just uh, move and live out of natural rhythms and desires uh, rather than constant productivity. Yeah, as we're making our plans and 
checking our calendars, making our plans, sticking with the schedule, we're really not where we are at that moment. We're somewhere else in our head. You know, we're just, we're not actually where we are. And that includes like our relationships too, like the people who, who are actually physically near, whether that's work, you know, relationships, family relationships, or whatever those might be. When we're centering it around the planner and the future, we're existing in this sort of unhelpful liminal space that isn't grounded in in the present moment, which is really interesting because we're not being, you know, we're just kind of floating out there in in an imaginary world, which has to happen sometimes, obviously, mm-hmm. when we're preparing for the future. But it's just really interesting because with this linear mindset, you can spend a majority of your time in a sense, not where you are. And that really does affect your spiritual formation because if you're not where you are and you're not grounded to the relationships and, and situations and your surroundings, I'm sure that will affect your empathy for other people and that will affect your ability to connect because you're not really where you are. I'm speaking for myself here. <laughs> I'm sure everybody has a different take on it and a different experience, but I know that that's also where my anxiety lies too. It'll be like, oh, I hope that I have prepared for this thing. I'm not actually where I am. There's a lot to be said for reorienting yourself to be where you actually are at the moment, at least for a majority of your day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, that control of the future or what we plan for, it, it is all an illusion anyway. Like we can actually control or plan our futures. Um, and, and that's, you know, what leads to anxiety when what we plan for, what we try to control doesn't happen the way that we expected or planned for. Um, and it just throws us off. I, I was reading one book recently, I think it's called Practical Mysticism on, on Quaker Spirituality and Mysticism. Um, and that author says that contemplatives aren't absent-minded, they're present-minded. To be present to what's happening right now, uh, rather than constantly trying to control something that we actually can't control. And I'm reminded too of a, I don't remember which, which philosopher, which Stoic said this, but I think the adage is something like, most of our suffering is imagined. And not to say that we don't have real suffering, but the suffering that we imagine, for instance, our expectations that get dashed, then we're really disappointed and, and depressed and thrown into a funk, or we're worrying and we're putting a lot of anxiety on ourselves about some future event, borrowing a problem from tomorrow or borrowing anxiety from tomorrow that hasn't happened. It's imagined suffering. Nothing has happened yet, but since we're imagining it, <laughs> we're suffering now. And there's something about putting that in its place and saying, like Jesus says, that today has enough worry of its own, today has enough concern of its own, that we can say, you know what, at least for today, I'm going to let all that stuff on the planner for next month and next week, just going to be in next week. (laughs) And I'm not going to give it my full attention. I'm going to actually separate myself and give a boundary and be where I am today. Those concerns can come when they come at least today I'm going to give myself a break from that 
some of us don't have the capability to do that all the time. But I wonder if we can actually begin to think more with different habits. Just taking a, a bit of a different direction here, there's a beautiful section in your book on page 50 where you talk about spirituality, suffering, and wisdom from our ancestors. I found this to be really beautiful. And apropos to some of the things I've been looking into and studying, and one of the things you speak of, it's kind of in the middle of the page on page 50, you, you speak about prayers and the unspeakable prayers that are groans. And when there's no words available, maybe the suffering's too much to even formulate in words. And you talk about a little bit about slavery here. And you say slavery was so senseless and dehumanizing that no amount of reasoning could provide comfort or certainty. Instead, those in slavery needed embodied and collective spiritual practices to survive. And here, I wanted to see what we could talk about in terms of, of suffering and the wisdom of our ancestors, kind of this contemplative way of prayer that involves no words, but also something about how our ancestors speak to us, because this is another thing in Western culture that isn't very accessed, I guess you could say. That chapter, you know, I was building off of James Cohn's, you know, writing on the spirituals and the blues. So he was looking at his ancestors um, in slavery and his line that really stuck out to me was, they didn't have time to think about neat philosophical answers to the problem of evil, right? That is what we do with our privilege is that we, we philosophically think about evil. And so when we encounter suffering, the first thing that we ask is why. In, for those of us in a Christian faith, right, we try to come up with a theology of evil and suffering. But I think what James Cone was pointing out was if you look at those in slavery, there is no rationalizing. There is no explanation. Evil is just evil. And so, you know, something that I do with my directees, you know, when they're experiencing deep suffering, rather than trying to go to that space of rationalizing or, or trying to figure it out, we just stop just to feel what we feel, just to lament or mourn or grieve. And those emotions are enough. You know, I write about a difference between a theology of suffering and a spirituality of suffering. And so the theology of suffering is asking why and blaming God but a spirituality of suffering is just being present um, with our suffering community and being present with our emotions to feel what we feel rather than trying to rationalize it away. I think there's something powerful in just, just feeling and recognizing the suffering um, as our emotions and our our physical suffering as well and what we're feeling in our bodies. Yeah, on page 40, you mentioned that as a spiritual director, I was trained to never ask why questions, why can imply blame or shame. I believe that asking how in our formation is a humble posture for 
facing our history and allowing our history to inform how we live today. And that's actually a conclusion I came to of, in my own suffering because that's exactly why I was asking, why, why would God, why would you let this happen? This is like a, feels like a cosmic mistake. And eventually I did come to this point of saying, well, what now? Suffering is so unreasonable. You can't put reason into it. You know, yes, there is nothing that you could come up with that would sort it out. Right. And I think about like my own ancestors who, who prayed in moans and groans. And there's something there that works, that soothes us in the, in the real deepness of our spirits, that there are no words and there is such great suffering that all you have may be silence or moans and groans. And that's plenty. That's enough. And that that's actually a gift that the ancestors that we have give us. And there's a strength in that there's a strength handed down in that and this brings us over to a portion you have in the book about grief and how i really appreciated you um, bringing this to our attention about how grieving is really truncated or ignored in the western culture particularly in the united states and how grieving works so differently in taiwan and taiwanese culture particularly how community contends with it. And it would be really helpful if you could kind of unpack that a little. Obviously, the book is going to do a much better, longer explanation. But if you could sort of touch on that. Our culture of grief in the U.S. is just very strange to me uh, because it's so private and people just grieve alone. You know, we're so uncomfortable with sitting with people who are grieving. We leave them all alone, right? We keep it as a private affair. It just feels so unhealthy uh, to me that we're so uncomfortable with grief that we can't grieve together. And so, you know, in Taiwan, what happens in funerals is very visible and very audible. I think is the best way to explain it. It's, it's visible in that there is a street side vigil before the actual burial. And the vigil is based on auspicious dates on the lunar calendar. So some vigils could be a few days, but some could be a week or longer, depending on how long they have to wait for the auspicious day for burial. Um, and so I could be walking to work or walking to lunch and pass by a vigil uh, for someone who has passed in my neighborhood. And so I know, right, the people in my community who are grieving in this time. The most vivid experience of funerals in Taiwan is at the very end um, when a body is cremated or sent into the fire, there is a deep wailing. Uh, and that is part of the ritual is for everyone, all the loved ones to, to wail loudly 
Um, and sometimes they even hire professional whalers uh, to whale with you to make it even louder. Um, and it's just so vivid and visceral. Um, but to me, it's so healing right? that when there are no words to rationalize your grief and your loss, that that deep wail is, is all you can do and all you need to do in that moment is just to wail uh, for the loss that you are experiencing. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, just reading about uh, funeral practices from all over the world, I think, reveals to me that just, we just have a very unhealthy culture of grief and loss in the U.S., that we are unable to face it. Um, and so we all grieve privately instead of communally. Right, and I'm reminded, too, that this is more of a modern situation, not so much, it's Western in, in a certain regard, but people definitely had longer mm. grieving practices just 100 years ago, 150 years ago, they had more communal ones in this country. But in countries where white people came from also, like just, there was just more ways to experience pain in community that would last longer. They, people would cover their mirrors with black cloth. They would wear an mm. armband or something. Like there were ways to tell people, I'm hurting, I'm grieving. This is a bad time for me. They weren't just pushing past it and taking a day off and then heading back to work the next day. It wasn't hurried past and it was definitely understood in a communal sense more. So I feel like we've sort mm. of in the U.S. anyway, sort of sanitized in a way that is and is going to be toxic so that somebody else handles the body, somebody else does it. You just show up for the little service and then kind of you're done. And it's really interesting because it's so painful to lose somebody and it's so permanent that how do you work through those feelings and how do you do it generatively feeling like you're not alone, how we're doing it. I mean, I, I don't know how it's done. I don't know. I lost my dad when I was 20, which is the age that my daughter is now. And yeah. I hurt every day and I miss him every day. You know, it's not like it goes away. I know there are ways that we in the U.S. could do this so much better. I'm not sure what they all are, but certainly we can learn from other cultures in the present day and some of it I think is a western lens of dividing things up but also there's something about modernity as we're experiencing it and the fast yes. pace that's like yeah get over it okay we got work to do or something it's harboring pain that that's going to come out some other way that's my opinion but if someone came to you and said what are ways we could do grieving better you know, what, what would you come up with, do you think? Yeah, I think you know, this is, you know, what I need to, right? What I need to learn and grow in is being able to be present even when it's uncomfortable, even if it's silent, right? To be present with another human being 
without needing to talk, but just to be present with each other. I think that we are just so avoidant of feeling uncomfortable that we aren't able to be in community with each other during times of grief or suffering of other sorts. And so I think we all need a formational process of just being okay with feeling uncomfortable, but valuing being present with one another. And just doing that, I think, would change, you know, how we are in community together through difficult seasons. I want to just read one more area of the book that's on page 138. It's actually in the conclusion area. I really enjoyed this part. It says, although I have studied Christian spirituality for a long time, I realize that I can never become an expert on spirituality because spirituality happens in our daily experience with God, not through study or self-discipline. In the end, the spiritual life is not just formed in the crisis moments when we may need God most. Instead, our spirituality is also experienced through the mundane, ordinary days. Our most routine, uneventful days are when our spirituality, our divine human interaction is happening although we are often unaware. Spirituality is the way we connect our everyday lives to the divine. It is that deep longing to experience the sacredness of life, self, God, community, and the earth. Spirituality facilitates a deep seeing and knowing, so we might see ourselves, God, and others as God sees. We then carry this sacred seeing into our day-to-day lives, in order to see and experience sacredness everywhere. And I think that really encapsulates spiritual formation for me and what spirituality is about in kind of a, a robust way. And I wanted to see what you wanted to add to that or what you wanted to say in response to what you wrote there. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it was a humbling moment, uh, you know, after I finished a, a PhD in spirituality and I realized we all start new every day. <laughs> uh, and but at the same time, that is the grace and mercy of God. And I need that mercy, you know, just as much as anyone else, that I get to start new every day. There's just so much grace in that, so much freedom in that, that every day is a new day to experience um, our sacredness um, and the sacredness of this earth. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think, you know, ultimately, spirituality facilitates just the time and space that we spend, you know, with, God and with you know the sacredness all around us and then we carry it with us wherever we go you know what we do in our inner formation is how we live in this world it comes out uh, and so whether our formation is healthy or unhealthy it comes out um, and so yeah it's the inner work that gives us our sustainability in this world there might be people who are not figuring this out is that everything is spiritual 
everything is sacred in this way of viewing God and each other. There isn't this little piece of your life that's like, okay, this is the spiritual part Mm -hmm. of my life. And then there's life. Right. That in this way of being spiritually formed, every single thing is included, enveloped in this way of being and seeing the world. And so this is also a non-Western way that we can break out of this box sometimes or we will segment these things this is my work life this is my home life this is my secret life this is my life with my children or or whatever those things might be there's a lot of segmentation sometimes that happens in in western ways of thinking and, and being right but that isn't how jesus saw it that's not how the Bible lays things out. It's it's your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, your whole strength is God's. This is God's world, and we are the beloved, and the beloved is ours. And so this is kind of like what I what I like for people to know, as well as you must, or you wouldn't have written the book this way, is that spiritual formation is the total, is the total you, the organism, the soul, Every single thing is included and gets transformed. And maybe you can um, underscore some piece of that, how you see it. Was that a change for you? Is that kind of always the place where you've come from culturally and and otherwise? I've always had, you know, a deep yearning and hunger. And so, you know, spirituality has been just a, a part of, you know, who I am, who, what I desire. Um, um, but I think, you know, to your point is that, you know, it's, it's not separate from, from all the other parts of our lives. It is who we are in each part of our lives. And it is, you know, who we are as, you know, a, a, you know, a family member, who we are in our work, who we are, um, in our faith life or who we are on the streets or in, you know, in justice work, right? It is, it is the inner formation that we need to be present in all of these different spaces that we may navigate in. It's an orientation to understanding how there is no part that isn't related to the spirit, to, you know, related to formation. And, and as you had as you've just said recently, you know, something is always spiritually forming us. It might be malforming us, you know, mm-hmm. making us into someone who is unhealthy or bitter or uh, cruel or, or whatever, or making us into loving, generative, healthy, kind people. But something's happening, whether we're cooperating with it willingly and aware or not. It's still happening, and our culture will impose on us certain things to form us as well. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of you know what we're aware of, and I think that's why another reason why it's important to have other generative influences on us to to reflect back to us. What are we really? How are we really being formed? What are we really allowing to influence us and and form us? And when we realize, oh wow, I'm being formed in these areas where I think this little area of my life 
gets a pass or <laughs> as if that could happen, right? That particular way of Western culture where we think our lives are segmented is this fallacy, this this false dichotomy that is so toxic. Mm-hmm. It can make can make our culture extremely violent, for instance, because somehow we think those things aren't connected. If there's any final thoughts or anything you'd like to share about that or anything else in the book you'd like listeners to hear, this would be a great time to share it. Yeah, well, connected with what you were sharing, I, you know, I think this is connected to the book that you wrote, actually, is, you know, that the transformation, you know, isn't happening because we're also so avoidant of just looking into ourselves, right? A self-awareness. Um, and that's what the desert tradition, you know, teaches us, as you wrote about in your book, is just that the first thing that happens when we quiet down, when we are silent, is we have to face ourselves. Um, and uh, that's hard, right? That's ultimately why people avoid, you know, the spiritual life is because they don't want to look at themselves. Uh, but that's what spirituality is, is that the first step is self-awareness. And it's through self-awareness that we also encounter our sacred selves as well. And so, yeah, like you said, you know, without that work, then transformation can't happen. I heard uh, this somewhere, and I thought it was really quite brilliant. And we're all sort of lost in this dark cave, right? And then we reach out for help. If we reach out for help, someone can help us leave the cave. But if we reach out to a spiritual director, we'll ask to go into the cave further. (laughs) <laughs> and we'll ask to go to the dark places, right? Yes. <laughs> you would think you'd want, you'd want to be released from it, but you're like, no, no, what's in this cave? I got to know. And because that cave is us, it's all the unknown. And we're okay going into the unknown because that's where all the wisdom comes from. And that's where we learn to know ourselves and find grace. That's where grace will come from, these scary places. And so, it's this the job of the spiritual director for anyone who's willing you could journey with them to exit the cave or go further in <laughs> and it's up to them to um reach out their hand and journey with us as directors but i think that's an interesting thing is that you know who's afraid of the dark right like, <laughs> yeah. we all are at first yeah that's really great <laughs> it's the last thing you're expecting it's like oh wait Further in? Oh. <laughs> but I hear growling noises and are those bats? But I think that's that's important for us to realize that God desires that we go into places that are fearful within us because wherever God is, is light and love. And so there is no place that is this abandoned place because mm. God's presence is always there. And that's another way we use dichotomies too. We'll think, oh, well, God isn't here. There's someplace God isn't. I was like, well, that can't be how it works, right? So it's good to disturb these false dichotomies. Mm -hmm. That's right. The truth is I am not alone, although I sometimes feel very alone. The truth is I'm not. How could I be? You know, how could I be separated from my source? So anyway, your book is really really well done. And um, I'm going to be going back to it again and again, because there's so many things in there. I need the reminders. 
Um, and I'd like you to tell people where they can find you, whether it's online or if they could even take a course with you. What can you tell people about that? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Misa. I really appreciate that. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Finding Eden. Uh, and uh, that's also the name of my website is FindingEden.org. Yeah, and the name of the book is Our Unforming, which you can find uh, wherever you buy books, so on Amazon or through Fortress Press as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.